Welcome to another broadcast of Hope for the Heart. My name is William Rogers, continuing this verse-by-verse study of the book of Revelation. And what a joy it is to be able to come to you with another, uh, what I think is an exciting lesson out of the book of Revelation. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to join with me as we read the context for today's message found in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. I'm not going to be able to get past verse 3 because I think so much of this is laid out uh, in framework form in which we will be able to add to it as we go along. So, Revelation chapter 20, uh, follow along with me if you would like. Uh, Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, the Word of God reads, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Now, I just want to say this about this verse. Uh, a simple understanding of this verse, or as we would put it like this, uh, a simple face value of this verse, uh, literally interpreting what is said, is very, very clear. I, I don't think there's any problem with this unless you hold to some of these other views that we talked about last time, like the amillennial view or the postmillennial view. And I'm presenting this today in the premillennial view. And we, perhaps we might have some time today to look over what some of those mean. <clears throat> but as we go through this, I want you to just understand at face value, a literal interpreting of what is said here is very, very clear. Just listen to it in a simple rendering of the face value of this. It says, basically, an angel comes down, and we have to assume that is from heaven, has a key, has a chain, takes hold of Satan, binds Satan, throws him into the abyss for a thousand years, at the end of which, a brief time, he will be released. So the first thing we see that occurs in the kingdom, and we've already stated that chapter 20 is the actual kingdom itself. So the first thing that occurs in the kingdom is the removal of Satan. Now that's going to dramatically change the world, don't you think? Because Satan is the prince of the power of the air, we're told in Ephesians. He is the god of this age. He is the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. So I think as a just, uh, just, again, a very cursory reading of this is very important to just kind of back up and take a look at what it says generally before we try to uh, dive into the specifics of what it says. Now what we're going to do in chapter 20, uh, and I mentioned this a little bit last time, is use chapter 20 as an important framework. As we go through it, we'll touch some of the passages in the Old and the New Testament which will hopefully give us a further understanding of the nature of the kingdom of which is being presented here. There are what I would call many explanations or text, explanatory texts that delineate the character of the kingdom more than we have right here in chapter 20. But here in chapter 20, it basically frames for us a chronological skeleton on which we can hang um, several other things that we're going to find in Scripture about the kingdom. So it's, it's, it's important for us to get, I think, an understanding of this 
so that we can come to a better understanding of what is in, involved in this coming kingdom. In fact, I've entitled the message today, An Earthly Kingdom is Coming. An Earthly Kingdom is Coming. And I, ta- I label it like that because we are uh, in, in a, a point, I think, in, in time where people are, are, are realizing a couple of things. Some people are, are saying that God has always promised a kingdom. We've always seen that. And he has. He's always promised a kingdom that was eternal. But he promised also that it would be an earthly kingdom, in which many people do not agree with that. And as well, he promised the hope of eternal heaven. Now, how can God fulfill all of that? An eternal kingdom, which is an earthly kingdom, and also a heavenly kingdom. Because that's what we're looking at here. Well, I think the answer is the millennial kingdom is the earthly part of that eternal kingdom. That 1,000-year millennial kingdom is really, I guess, for lack of a better phrase at this moment, would be like phase one of God's eternal kingdom. Uh, In the Old Testament, the promises to Israel, the promises through the prophets speak of a kingdom that is earthly, but they also speak of a kingdom that is heavenly, a kingdom that is here on this planet, and a kingdom that is in completely different dimension, a kingdom that is measured by time, a kingdom that is beyond time. And so when you look at the kingdom prophecies, you will see they are, they are eternal. They stretch out long enough to go from here through forever and ever. But at the same time, the beginning of that kingdom uh, fulfillment has an earthly phase, and that is a thousand-year millennium that is the theme of this chapter. Uh, that's probably all a mouthful to just simply say, I truly believe in a literal 1,000-year earthly kingdom that will be here, like I say, on the earth. And I, I believe that with all my heart. It will, it is, is, uh, it's necessary that God do it this way. He promised an earthly kingdom, so he will bring it. I think it's very clear. I think it's very obvious that he's going to bring the kingdom. Into that earthly kingdom will come people who are physical, just like we are, who haven't died. That's how it begins. There will be people who are going to survive the time of the tribulation, which is seven years. We've talked about that in over many, many weeks. They will be redeemed. Uh, they will come, and yet, and yet they, will, they will be saved. In other words, they will not die, and yet they're going to be ushered right into the kingdom. They will come from the nation of Israel. Many will come from the nation of Israel and from other nations of the world. They will go into this earthly kingdom in the glorious, renewed, or revived earth. They will have children, and so natural reproduction will be going on. Natural process, processes in life will be happening. Now, that may be hard for some people to understand because, as, as I have pointed out several times, there's not a lot of teaching in churches today about the kingdom. And yet we look at this kingdom with such fascination uh, and uh, really an excitement as long, along with anticipating this. What will it really be like? You mean there's going to be people that are going to live through the tribulation period yet get saved and go right into the kingdom as Christ sets it up and live there for a thousand years. That's exactly correct. But what about unsaved people? Will they, uh, will, will there be any unsaved people live and go into the kingdom? And the answer to that is no. 
There will be plenty of unsaved people who were going to live. That's what the Battle of Armageddon is about. All of those people have survived the tribulation, yet are all unbelievers. And so they will be taken in the judgment that, as we said, in the sheep and goat judgment uh, in Matthew chapter 25. And you have two groups of people, saved and lost. The saved go into the kingdom, lost go into eternity, uh, into their death. And so there will be a group of people on the earth who will have the right to believe or not believe. And so the kingdom, while in fact is a, a, a kingdom given to God's people by way of fulfillment of, of all the promises that we find in the Old Testament, is also really the final time in which redemption can occur in the lives of human beings. In other words, it's the last time, last thousand years, in which people can actually be saved. So there has to be the kingdom the final gathering together of the redeemed, and then can come the eternal state, or as we would say, the, the rest of the chapter or the rest of the story, which begins in chapter 21 of Revelation. So today we're continuing looking at Revelation chapter 20, and then in chapter 21 we'll see the eternal kingdom, which is called the new heaven and the new earth, but boy, a lot has to happen before that. But here in chapter 20, we're actually looking at a restored earth, restored to its nearly original glory, ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ himself and all of the saints of all ages. So as we said last time, up until Revelation 20, everything has been kind of a, a, chron a chronology or chronological order given. In this chapter, the kingdom comes and is described in major features if not specific details, major features. It's a framework of the kingdom on which we can hang the myriads of details that we're going to gather from the rest of Scripture. And I think people are usually shocked when they actually begin to study the kingdom, even in the simplest way of how much the Scriptures speak of this. And I suggested to you last time that a literal interpretation and and the simple acknowledgement of the normal chronology of Revelation puts the kingdom on earth for a thousand years after the return of Christ and before the new heavens and the new earth. And I think, I think that becomes very obvious. I think you, you begin to see that. So you have the return of Christ in chapter 19, which follows the tribulation, described in chapter 6 through uh, the first part of chapter 19. And then you have... Uh, what is given to us in chapter 21 of Revelation, you have the new heaven and the new earth. But between that, we find chapter 20. And chapter 20 is the kingdom. And so you can see real quick, but just by looking at a, a glance, chapter 20 is broken up into several parts. And it's broken up uh, in a way that I think we can take it in bite-sized pieces. But yet it, it, it obviously can't represent all of the thousand years. It's just so little that's given to us as far as specific detail. And so you have to kind of see, see this as a framework and then begin to branch into other areas to get the actual details. And boy, there are a lot of details. We'll see them in, in many of the Old Testament books and some in some of the New Testament books. But remember last time I told you there's post-millennialists who believe that the, the world's getting better and better. They say the kingdom is going on now or soon will be going on. And at the end of the kingdom, Jesus will just simply come. Uh, in other words, there's not really going to be a kingdom. Uh, it's not Christ who brings in the kingdom by his return, but it's the church that it brings in the kingdom and then offers it up to Christ. It's not a literal thousand years, but simply the power of Christ 
being expressed in the earth uh, through the church, uh, however long the church age is. So they take that as a, a, a simply a, a, a not a literal thousand. A thousand doesn't mean a thousand. Uh, there are people who hold to that today. They they are well known group that would be called the Reconstructionist or or the Reconstructionist theology. Uh, of today, and if you're familiar with those terms, dominion uh, theology, kingdom theology, there are various forms of post-millennialism, but it basically says things are getting better and better and better and better, then Jesus will come. But I, I don't see that in the scripture. I just don't see it. That is not to interpret the Bible literally. That demands a figurative, symbolic interpretation. It means spiritualizing it also completely rejects any chronology that the Bible gives us, specifically in the book of Revelation. And then the one that puzzles me more than any are the amillennialists who say there is no kingdom at all. It isn't even going to come. Christ will come at the end of, of, of this age. The only kingdom that we'll ever see is what's going on right now. Uh, it's just the church age, and that fits. I mean, and that's it. And at the end of the, of, of the church age, Jesus will come. And in some ways, it's not really a lot different from the post-millennialists. But in other ways, it makes the church Israel. This is something that I, I started teaching at the, the, the last church I pastored uh, in Florida. And, and many were just, uh, had never really heard this. But it's called replacement theology. And it makes the church Israel. All the promises of Israel, of a future kingdom, are fulfilled in the church. We are the spiritual Israel. In other words, the church is the spiritual Israel. Well, I can't, I can't grab hold of that either. I just don't see that uh, with any real validity in the scripture at all. There's no future for Israel as a nation, they're saying. The church age is the only kingdom. There's only that. That's all there is. And then it's over and, and Jesus comes. Again, the amillennialist view takes a spiritualized uh, rather than a literal interpretation and also rejects any chronology uh, in, in the book of Revelation. So we go back to where we began with this brief discussion. That is to say, a literal interpretation of Scripture, old and new, and a simple understanding of the chronology of Revelation, I think, makes us... I, I, I know this irritates some people, but it really, I don't see how you can come out with anything other than a premillennial point of view. That premillennial means before the millennium, which means we're talking about Jesus comes before the millennium, which means he's coming to set it up, start it, to run it, to reign in it. Because we see the return of Christ, we see the kingdom, then the eternal state. And then the kingdom becomes the final stage on earth in which the last drama, as one writer puts it, of human history is played out. Everything is cleaned up to establish the new heaven and the new earth. So, when we get to Revelation chapter 20, which is where we are, verse 1, uh, there is a lot that has happened to the earth. You've gone through seven years of tribulation period where it looks like destruction, 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 and there is. But it's also at the same time reshaping the earth. And we're going to get into that next time. It's just how different the world is going to be. But this, as I said, is a skeletal or general framework in which we're going to hang all the specifics. 
Uh, they're going to be meaningful, but this, this is just the framework. So let's talk about the first point in chapter 20, and, and that is, uh, I, w- I want you to see the first thing in verse 1. There's First I noticed there is an angel. Look at what it says. And I saw, and this is the, this is the way it reads, verse 1, I saw an angel. Uh, then it gives the rest of the verse. Now, a simple understanding of that is what I've told you about. Up to this point, by the way, God has already taken care of the the rebels, the unbelievers, fallen men, sinful men have all been slain in the process of judgment through the time of the great tribulation, and those who survive will will uh, those who survive will perish in the uh, Armageddon or the the uh, uh, judgment of the sheep goat judgment. So the unregenerate world has been destroyed. That's what you... It's good to understand this. When we read verse 1, the earth is not the same earth anymore. I mean, the earth, the world is not the same. It's different. The unregenerate world has been destroyed. And then the Antichrist and the false prophet, we find at the end of chapter 19, have been seized and thrown into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. So basically, the ringleaders, the actual ringleaders of this, Rebellion, worldwide rebellion, have been taken care of. Yeah, it leaves only Satan and the and the demons still loose. And if the Lord is going to establish His kingdom, don't you think He's going to get rid of the ungodly leaders? He's going to have to get rid of the ungodly people, which He's done. He's He's now going to get rid of the ungodly powers of the heavens, namely Satan and all the demons. Now, uh, and I'm going to explain that in just a minute about about the all the demons part. But if the kingdom is to be all that God has designed, I think it would be very clear of an understanding to say the enemy has to go. Who's the enemy? Well, Satan. And we're going to see that right here. There could be no 1,000 years of peace, as the millennium is referred to, and righteousness if Satan is still at large. So God removes the one who is the adversary the enemy, the one creating the conflict. In fact, his head was bruised at the cross as promised. Do you remember that in Genesis 3.15? Now comes his incarceration before a final exile at the end of that thousand years in which he will be cast into the lake of fire uh, and there he will dwell forever. So here is the incarceration of Satan and the demons which is crucial to the reign of Christ and the reign of the saints through the this kingdom without any obstruction, without any hindrance. Now, I can say this, what a world that is going to be. It is going to be an unbelievable place. So let's look at how he phrases this. Look at verse 1, just just briefly. And I saw, that that is the phrase, that before we actually get much into the angel, notice it starts, and I saw. Well, look at verse 4, and I saw. And so... And I saw is a little phrase that's repeated and is an indication of some sequence of events. It just seems to give us some sequential order here. Back in chapter 19, verse 11, And I saw heaven open. Verse 17, And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And then verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings. Now in chapter 20, And I saw an angel come down from heaven. In verse 4, And I saw thrones and they that sat upon them. And then verse 11, and I saw a great white throne. And so we can see that this seems to be connected, and it also seems to be a little bit of chronology or sequence of events. 
It's not too hard to understand there's a real sequence here. Verse 4, and I saw thrones. And verse 11, and I saw the great white throne. It just seems to flow naturally without changing and literally taking it as a literal interpretation. Look at verse 12, and I saw the dead. And John is marching us sequentially through this tremendous vision of the establishment of the kingdom one step at a time. He's given us like the overall framework. He's not trying to give us all the little details. The major steps are indicated by the little phrase, and I saw. So what does he see? Well, he sees an angel. Number one, there is an angel. We can speculate, which is all we really can do about this angel, as a particular angel. It could be, as noted in chapter 12, verse 7, where we saw Michael there as indicated to be a uniquely gifted, uh, strong angel in some significant role on the behalf of God. And then you find Jude 9, Michael is called the archangel. Perhaps some would suggest this could be Michael because of the, uh, the kind of event this is. One writer puts, perhaps this is Michael the archangel because of the formidable event that is about to happen. Well, Michael, who has been the archenemy of Satan, would probably love to be the angel charged with this responsibility. But the fact is, the Bible doesn't tell us who this angel actually is. In fact, when you go back to uh, chapter 11, you see, uh, actually several different chapters here, you see other angels that are appearing and, and doing specific things. And we're not told who these are, uh, but they are obviously coming from God. This is purely speculation to give any kind of a name to this angel, but probably it would have to be a mighty angel, certainly uh, endued with supernatural strength because he comes down from heaven having the key uh, to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. So, number one is the angel. Number two is the agenda. Agenda. Uh, we see an angel, but he's coming with an agenda. Now, what's the agenda? Well, the agenda is pretty clear, isn't it? The agenda, agenda reads, he comes down from heaven with a specific agenda. He's going to do some very specific thing here, things. One, he's going to lay hold of Satan. Two, he's going to bind him for a thousand years. Three, he's going to cast him into the abyss. Four, he's going to lock him with a key. Five, set a seal. Six, loose him at the end of the thousand years. Wow, that is a quite a quite a, a bit of activity. So his agenda is is prescribed by heaven itself. We have to assume that that heaven is sending him, or God Himself is sending him. He comes down. He has what is called the key of the abyss. Uh, the word is used might be saying, well, "What is the abyss?" Well, Peter calls it in Second Peter chapter two verse four, "The pits of darkness, reserved for judgment." It is, place where demon, it is a place where demons are sent to be reserved for their final sentencing to the lake of fire. They won't, we won't see that until the end of verse, chapter 21. It is not the final hell here that we see. And believe me, fallen angels will go there because the final hell, the lake of fire, has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And we'll see that in the end of chapter 21. And so, ultimately, they're going to end up in the lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone forever and ever. But that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is he's being locked up and bound in the abyss, uh, a pit of darkness, uh, 
In fact, Matthew chapter 25, verse 41 says, The lake of fire is prepared for the devil and his angels. And in verse 10 of chapter 20, The devil who has deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. Uh, so we're, we're, going to, we're going to see that here in this one chapter. We're going to see that in chapter uh, 20, verse 10. So there's a lot that's going to be happening here, but the devil doesn't get thrown into that place until the thousand years is over. It's not over yet. We're just looking at the beginning of it. Uh, this is simply a place of incarceration, not the specific final lake of fire. The abyss is mentioned in Luke chapter 8, verse 31. Uh, Jesus was casting out demons, and uh, remember they responded back to him and said, don't send us to the abyss. And again, I say that this is not the final eternal lake of fire. It is a place of torment, certainly a place of punishment, a place out of the presence of God, a place of incarceration, a temporary place where God sends demons and where in this case he binds Satan. Wow. And this stuff is real. This is not a fairy tale. This is not something fictitious. This is real scripture being read to you today in real time. But this also happened. John saw all of this in the book of Revelation. Remember now, everything we know about God and everything we really know about Satan Everything we know about absolute truth comes because God gives it to us. He chooses to reveal this to us. He chose to reveal this to John for the purpose of revealing it to us. Now just to give you a little bit of an understanding here, there are certain angels, some are good angels, some are bad angels, there are demons, some are loose, some are bound. Uh, these are permanently bound, there are permanently bound angels, permanently bound fallen angels, uh, and demons, uh, when they were permanently bound, well, I believe these are the ones who sinned in Genesis chapter 6, and that's a whole other story. And I've had people actually ask me to get into that, but uh, I, I don't want to get into all that. In chapter 9, we see a more uh, of revelation. We see uh, demons coming out of uh, the abyss, 200 million of them who have been bound at the Euphrates. Uh, and so you see all of this demonic activity, but here to start the kingdom, it's important to know Satan is being bound here. But notice what it says here. In this, there is also this. There is the uh, the angel with an agenda. But I want you to notice number three. He's got authority. Look at the authority of this angel. This angel has a key, and that key is symbolic or identifies. The fact that this angel has the authority. If you have the key, you control the door. Well, what is the door? The angel has the key and it signifies authority. He can open it, he can close it. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 1 of Revelation, the fifth angel sounded, I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth and the key and had the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. And he opened the bottomless pit. So there it is, he opens it. Same kind of thing, that bottomless pit, that abyss, that place of torture and torment. Not the final hell, but the place of incarceration of demons. That's what we find in Revelation 9. That being opened up. Well, now it's being opened up again, it says. Uh, he laid hold, or he, he has the key to the abyss and the great chain in his hand. And so he is opening this up again. Now... It is a, a, a very interesting thing to look at this because it's talked about so many times where demons and angels are, 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 are demons, which are bad angels, 
are looked at here and they're held in this place of, of, of torment, of, of bondage, a pit of darkness. Uh, we see it in Jude chapter 6. Angels who did not keep, not Jude chapter 6, Jude 6. Uh, angels who did not keep their own dominion but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. Well, what is that talking about? Well, he's talking about the same place. That same very place. So Satan then goes... And he is bound in the same place that these other demons have been eternally uh, in bonds and chains. And so in chapter 2 of uh, 2 Peter, in verse 4, it says the same thing. Now Mark chapter 5, uh, we find the same kind of thing where demons are responding back to this. And they do not want to be thrown into this place. Uh, but this angel here is, uh, it has a very specific agenda and he has the authority to do that. But now notice the names that are given to him here. It says he has the key to the abyss, or he has the authority, and a great chain in his hand. That is simply to accomplish this agenda that he has. But verse 2 says, and in verse 2 we see something very interesting. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Wow. That is amazing. This has got to be a monumental moment. And he lays hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and bound him for a thousand years. That is the exact duration of this kingdom. It's given us the duration right here in this chapter. It's the duration of the kingdom. Uh, he laid hold of the dragon. And again, remember that term dragon is used back in chapter 12 of Revelation, verse 3, 4, and 17, to refer to Satan very clearly there. Not only is he called a dragon, he's called the serpent of old. And what does that remind you of? That serpent of old takes you all the way back to the Garden of Eden into Genesis. And uh, so the, the one, according to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, who deceived, uh, and that is the dragon, that fierce, bestial, uh, cruel, vicious, deadly old snake. And I'm quoting that from John, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse. From the Garden of Eden, further he defines him who is, it says, who is the devil. Again, giving you another picture. Uh, devil is, uh, it means slanderer. And you remember from the book of Revelation, he tells us he is night and day before the throne, accusing the brethren. He is a liar. He has been, has been his character ever since he fell. He is the father of all lies, as John chapter 8 talks about. He cannot speak the truth except for lying purposes. The devil, it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, has sinned from the beginning. He is a lying deceiver. And that is what he's looking at here. John sees him as he is called the dragon, the serpent, the devil, and Satan. Satan just means adversary, enemy. He opposes God. He opposes Christ. He opposes saints. Uh, Job, Peter, Paul, all believers. Back in chapter 12, again, verse 4, 9, and several other verses, we've gone through all that in the past, so... Is a triumphant moment in God's redemptive plan. This is the moment when the victory of Christ is exercised over his arch enemy, and uh, he is being bound, and the duration is for a thousand years. But notice what it says in verse 3. Look at what it says in verse 3. And through him, and I know my time is very, very short, through him, into the abyss and shut it, sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are complete. So binding him, you have no doubt because I guess the angel doesn't want to go down there. Literally the word 
Uh, abyss, by the way, means bottomless. It's a bottomless, dark pit. This is the description of the place of incarceration. It's a, a bottomless pit. Does it mean it doesn't have a bottom? Well, that's what bottomless would mean. This is the description of the place of incarceration. Uh, now, all seven times this abyss or bottomless pit appears in Revelation. It refers to that place where fallen angels, evil spirits are held captive, the place where they await their final incarceration for which they can never be relieved. And that we see in Isaiah chapter 24, uh, verses 21 and 22. Interestingly, uh, it will happen in the day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven. Who are the host of heaven? Angels. Uh, demons. These are wicked angels. The Lord will punish in that day the wicked angels, and they will be gathered together like prisoners in a dungeon and will be confined in prison. After many days, they will be punished. So, they are, I think as Isaiah puts it, uh, going to be uh, experiencing this, but verse 3 says the angel throws them, shuts it, seals it. He's chained with a great chain. He's locked them in the abyss. And he shuts it and seals it so that the world, it says, cannot be influenced by Satan. The whole world is going to be influenced by this action. It's go the world will not be influenced by this. Uh, by only uh, looking at this, you see, man, it's got to change the world. You see, well, why doesn't everyone then who's born of the redeemed people who go into the kingdom become Christians? Uh, you might think all those that are born during the kingdom should actually become Christians. You would think that. No Satan. Well, that's not going to be the way it is. Amazingly, there will be fallen. Uh, people still have the fallen sin nature. Who They will reject Christ even though they're living in that marvelous kingdom itself. Uh, and it shows you the depth of sin, but it will happen as such. But the point made here is that all of this is done to Satan, the middle of verse 3, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer. His deceptions are going to be over. His deceptions are over. If people reject Christ, it will not be because they are what? Deceived by Satan. It will be because of their love for iniquity, or as John chapter 3 puts it, they love their sin. And he's kept there, it says, until verse 3, until the thousand years are completed, and then the nations will be tested once again. So, that brings me to the close of this. I can't go any further, but next time we're going to be looking at what will the world be like after this moment in verse 3, when Satan is bound and the earth is being restored to its uh, almost perfect or original condition. What will that look like? What will it be like for those on the earth? And yes, we will be there. If Even if you're a Christian today and you pass away, you will be there in spiritual body. And we can show you that from the scriptures. So I uh, thank you today for joining me. And I pray that you have a great weekend. And we'll talk to you or see you again next time.